All right. Well, again, it's good to um, be here with all of y'all, even though uh, I know a lot of y'all are still joining us online, but we are today. I just want to say thank you um, for all of y'all that made inspiration uh, this happen, this gathering. There's a lot that goes into it, and we've also got a lot of new faces that have made this happen. We've got uh, Jason back there. We've got Adam and the Bassett family. They've been doing good. Uh, it's just, it's neat to see new faces. I know that Kevin and uh, uh, Gebhardt, he's back on the, the screens today. So if, you, if anyone messes up, if you see the wrong verse, that's all Kevin. But uh, it's just neat to see faces jumping back in and everybody getting back in the swing of things. And next week, I really hope that everyone is geared up, ready for Easter. It's going to be great in the park. Now today, we're going to close out our series. And I, uh, we've been in this series since the beginning of the year. And we're going to close out the series, The Story of Us, where we have gone through Genesis 1 through 11, and we have looked at five stories. And the point of these stories is that they are the stories of us. Now, I'm going to be uh, real with you, you have gotten a seminary level education in this, that, that we have gone deep into some of these stories and scriptures. Last week, my feedback was we got way too much, way too much that, uh, that you never wanted to know, but uh, it's still good to know, and at least you know that uh, there's a lot going on even in these simple stories. But what I want you to take away from this series more than anything is that this series is a mirror. This series is us looking at ourselves and saying, you know what, that's what we're really like. You know, the truth is, is that the hardest quality for you to work on in your life is self-awareness. Did you know this? It's the, probably the most important, but it's the hardest. One of the things that uh, I'm learning about myself is how forgetful and distracted I am. Now, if you were to ask me, I would probably tell you, I'm among the most focused, I'm among the most normal people you could possibly meet. That's what I would probably tell you. However, when I talk to you and when I talk to my wife most of the time, my kids certainly, they would tell you different. They would say, Dad, maybe you're not self-aware. I think the, the most, uh, I guess, glaring example of me being distracted or forgetful is probably when my wife asked me to go get something from the store. And guys, you're probably with me on this. My wife will send me to get flour, whatever it is. And I will go to the store and my eyes will get real big and I'll start getting beef jerky, I'll get peanuts, I'll get Dr. Pepper, I'll get everything that I wasn't sent to the store for. And then the funniest part of this, or, or, or if you're my wife, the, the, the saddest part of this is I will check out and it will not dawn on me that I have not got flour or I have not got what I was at. I will drive home and I'll be thinking about my Dr. Pepper, I'll be thinking about my beef jerky or whatever it is that I bought that I didn't need. And it's not until I get right in front of my wife and I look at her and she looks at me and there's just this moment where before, it happens like a split second before she actually says, did you get the flower? Where I'm like, I forgot the flower. And I'll realize that the last hour or whatever it was, that I just wasted it because I got distracted. And I, I'll just have this moment standing before her where all the guilt and the shame of the last hour is just right there. And there's nothing I can say. There is absolutely nothing I can do to cover it over. All I can do is put my head down, turn around, and go back. And this time, hopefully, I write it on my arm. Or I write it, you know, I, I make sure that's the only thing I'm going to get. When we think about being self-aware and who we are, one thing never leaves me, and that is the fact that all of my flaws, all of these getting distracted, all of the things that I fall short on, it's one thing to stand in front of my wife. 
But it's another thing to, to, to be serious about the fact that someday I'm going to stand before God. And I'm going to be in that same moment where every single thing that I did in this life, I'm going to have to give an account. And I'm going to have to, to say to myself, was I distracted? And, and what am I going to say if I'm before God? I'm being held accountable. And you know what? I got distracted. I got busy. I got focused on all of the wrong things. You know, that's my fear for all of us, even as Christ followers, is we've had a crazy year. We've gone into all of the, the ups and downs. And, and for some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we've gotten distracted. We've lost focus. And someday we're going to be held accountable, even though life was crazy. We're going to be held accountable. And so as we close out this series, I really, really want to talk about a story that represents all of us. And I think it's important to, to, to understand this story was chosen to close out this, 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 um, this series of stories intentionally by God. It's un, this is an important story that even though you think you know about the Tower of Babel, I guarantee you it's a story that represents all of us. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 10, which is right before, and I just want to give some context. The, the Tower of Babel, the story of the, of the Tower of Babel is in Genesis 11, but let's get some context, okay? Genesis 10 and 11 actually kind of form a bridge that connect us from Noah to a man named Abraham. And it kind of tells us how did things go from God resetting everything to Abraham going all over the world and people are here, people are there, big empires are here, and there's people all over the place. And this is kind of going to fill in that gap. And so it starts off, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, uh, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togomar. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodonim. Or Dodonim, right. That's a, that's a lot of names to say. I think I did pretty well on them. Now what I want you to see from this... Uh, it says in verse 5, from the coastlands, people spread, they spread their lands, each with their own language, their own clans, and their own nations. Now, what I want you to understand, and I've tried to make this very clear throughout the entire series, is that this is not a complete uh, list of uh, genealogies. This is not a complete list of how everybody spread. And the way that you know this is the, the numbers become important again. There are seven sons listed from Noah. Noah most likely had more than seven sons, but the, the compilers and the writers, they're big on making important numbers stand out to show us significance. And so seven sons, and then there are seven grandsons. Notice they only pick two of the sons to show the genealogy. So we have the seven sons that are listed, but then it only shows the grandsons, it only shows three of the sons of, of Gomer and three of Javan, just to make the number, or, or four from Javan, just to make the number seven coming. So you have seven sons, seven grandsons. It's basically showing that they were being fruitful, they were multiplying, and they were, they were beginning to spread out. And also understand that it's not complete because by the time you get to the grandsons, it says that there are entire clans and entire nations and they have their own languages. 
Now, we kind of skip over this sometimes, but how many of you, uh, when you talk to your grandparents or if you have uh, kids, when they talk to their grandparents, they speak an entirely different language? Now, I would tell you, it seems like that if you ever see my youngest kids, especially when they're playing video games and they're using words like sus and all these things, and I'm like, what does that even mean? But... I can still communicate with them. I can still talk with them because we're speaking the same language. So understand that it's condensed. And the point here is not to say this is every person that existed on earth. The point is to say these things are spreading out, that they're being fruitful and multiplying. I really, if there's one thing, or there's a lot of things, but um, one thing I want us to, to, to kind of get away from the mindset is that Genesis, that one of the things we can do in Genesis is we can count back and we can see how old the earth is, or we can see how old mankind has been through the genealogies. That has never been something that the Bible pretends to even do, okay? These genealogies are not complete. Nowhere in Genesis does it say it's 6,000 years of, is all that man has existed. All of these things are not actually in the text, and I think it's important to know these things, but they're compressed. Now, when we get to, um, to verse 6, this is where I want us to, to kind of see the context of this verse, of where we're going. It says the sons of Ham, and if you remember, Ham is kind of the bad guy. He's the one that, was, uh, that did the, the looking on last week. It says, Cush, here are his sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush goes through, but in verse 8, it says this, Cush, fathered Nimrod. Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, how many of us have gone a day without saying that, right? We say that all the time. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. Y'all say Shinar. Shinar, Shinar, it's going to be a big deal. Now it says, he, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. This is the great city. And then it says, Egypt fathered Ludum. And what I want you to see here is that if you are getting this book for the first time, thousands of years ago, when the Hebrew people got these books, one of the questions they would have had is, wait a second, I thought Noah kind of reset everything, but yet I see Egypt. I see, uh, I see this huge Babylon and Assyria and, and this huge, huge empire. How did things get so big and so powerful? And, 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 and now we are here trying to go into to Canaan. There's no way we'll ever be able to, to overpower the Canaanites. They're too big. They're too strong. And what's interesting is that that. It's kind of this bridge between showing that God is still in control. This is still happening, okay? And so when we get into chapter 11, you're going to see something very interesting. It starts off, now the earth had one language and the same words. Now what's the problem with this if you just read the context in chapter 10? It just told us that people had spread out with their own languages and their own people and their own nations. So in other words... If you're going to try to rationalize this and put this into a, a story, a chronology, it's, you're going to find it just doesn't fit. I guess it would go somewhere in chapter 10 if you tried to put it in. But the point is, is there's something else going on here. They've got this guy, Nimrod, who at the time would have been a legend, okay? Nimrod to us sounds like an insult that you would give to your younger brother, right? Um, or at least my brother might give to, to me. But... Uh, 
but in reality, this would have been a famous name, a powerful name. And he obviously was the founder of Assyria, of Babylon, of all these empires. He was somebody, a king. He would have been somebody who really brought people together. And so when we get to the story in Genesis 11, this is really the reason Nimrod was mentioned in 10 is because we're going to kind of explain how Nimrod uh, and his empire would have, you know, kind of been viewed. And so the whole earth, we're going to be around Babylon. So it might not be the whole earth, but to, to them understand it's everybody they know, these kingdoms, they're going to be, how did, how did this land that Nimrod took control of, how did it get to be this way? And so we're kind of going to zoom in on Shinar, okay? It's going to say this, okay? It says, the people migrated from the east. Now, this should trigger us to remember, um, we don't actually know which direction they went. And the reason is, is if they came from the east, either they went westward, meaning they came from the east and they went to the west, or they came from the east and they went more east. We don't actually know which way they go. If they're in Babylon, they probably went more east. But it says this term to the east or from the east. And anytime you hear the word east, you should remember from Genesis chapter 1. They certainly would have remembered from Genesis chapter 2 and 3, I mean, that going east means to go out of the presence of God. And so there's this subtle hint here that people began to migrate, but they weren't just migrating and, and filling the earth. They weren't just spreading out, that their hearts were also migrating away. This is kind of foreshadowing or allude, um, alluding to. And they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Therefore, who are these people? These are the Babylonians. These are the Assyrians. These are the people of Nimrod, to which they would have been viewed as wicked people by the, the, the Hebrew people. And so this is kind of an origin story for them. How did they get like this? It says they settled there and they, found, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And so they began to do something that uh, up until this point, the technology had not allowed. They began to make bricks. Now, there's a lot of word plays going on in this. I will just tell you that there are words used in Hebrew that have never been used like this. There's a lot going on in this story. For example, it's, instead of make bricks, it says we're going to brick bricks and we're going to burn them to burn them. That's basically the, the terminology. There's a lot of literary stuff going on here. Um, we know from the same time that bricks were technology. You think your cell phone is awesome, but you realize how awesome bricks are? Bricks make every building. To this day, we still use bricks to make buildings, okay? Now, one of the things that's interesting is we know that at the same time, one of the temples the Hebrew people would have seen in Babylon was a, a temple to Marduk. And that temple, they spent a year making bricks just to build this seven-story tower to Marduk. And we know before the tower of Marduk was built in Babylon, there were more ziggurats and there were more towers built. Okay, so this was something that was known by the, people, the Hebrew people. They knew these towers were being built in Babylon. Okay, and these were big towers. These were, I mean, seven right now, we're on the second floor and I can see miles and miles. Can you imagine being seven, eight, even 10 stories, even at, the, at that time? It would have been amazing. Bricks, uh, usually, if you wanted to build a house, you had to have stone or you had to have clay. But for the first time when bricks came along, you could just build a house anywhere. You could build a building anywhere. You could settle in the middle of a desert or in the middle of places that you couldn't settle before simply because you could make bricks. You could make a house. This is a big deal. 
Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let's make a name for ourselves, lest we are dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, the story is called the Tower of Babylon, or the Tower of Babel, but the interesting thing is, is the tower is not the point of the story. The city is the point of the story. And in fact, every time you see the word tower in this story, it's going to be preceded by the city. The city is never, or the tower is never mentioned without the city. The city is the point, okay? So it says specifically, we want to, let's gather together so that we're not dispersed. Now, the problem with this is what? God had told them to what? He had said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God had dispersed them and kind of sent them out. And so for the first time, this city, this idea that, uh, that, that Nimrod or whoever came up with that, hey, we're going to gather together and we're going to not worry about filling the earth with the image of God. We're not going to worry about telling people about how great God is. For the first time, they said, we're going to just, we're going to get together and we're going to build a tower and it's going to reach to the gods. It's going to reach to the heavens. And it's not the tower. The tower is a joke to God. I'll show you that in just a second. But what it is, is for the first time, they're not even considering the purpose or the call that God had given them. And, and, and what's even more striking is that when we started off, we started off with Eve eating from the, the, the fruit from the tree, and she at least said, had the question, did God really say? And she had this struggle of, am I going to follow God or not? And she chose not to. But here, they're not even wrestling with it. They're not even asking, what did God tell us to do? Did God tell us to disperse? Did God tell us to, to, to did he give us a mission? They're not, even, they're not even concerned with it. They're just, hey, we're going to do what we want to do. The city is a problem, and it's not just that it's a city, it's the utter lack of concern for who God is and what he commanded. It is now prevalent everywhere, and Babylon is a symbol for we're going to do what we want to do. It doesn't matter what God said. And the Lord came down to the city, this is verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men, of men had built. And understand, this is kind of mocking. It's, it, the, the idea of God coming down is to say, hey, you built this big tower. I still got to come down to get to this tower. And now we have the children of man. It's no longer the, the sons of God. It's now the children of men. There's this belittling, this idea that you can replace God is being mocked. But understand, God is not looking at this saying, oh my gosh, that tower is going to reach me. It's clearly saying, all right, let me go down. Let me, they're, they're never going to reach me, but let me go down and address this city situation. Verse 6, the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they pr propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, as a child, I would read this and I'd be like, that is so weird. God is so scared of what men can do. And he's so intimidated that he has to go down. But there is so much more going on. The first thing I want to assure you is God is not worried about them building a tower. The tower is not the point. It's the city. And this is not a rescue mission in which God has got to say, okay, let me go save myself from these, these powerful men. This is God seeing a pattern that we have seen over and over again in Genesis of men deciding, I'll do what I want to do. I'll disregard God, even if it leads to the murder and if even if it leads to the pain of being separated and the pain of, 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 of curses and all of the things that our sin and our separation from God leads to. And eventually in Noah, in the story of Noah, even if it leads to the ultimate judgment in which they lose their life and they lose their future, 
men still have this choice. We have this wickedness inside of us, we learn, that we will still rebel. And so God sees this same pattern. And he says, you know what, if I, if I don't go down there, then they're going to go straight back into judgment. They're going to go straight back into this destruction that they continue to put on themselves. And so God comes down and says, I'm going to go and I'm going to save them from themselves. And understand, the Tower of Babel or the city of Babel, the story is God coming down to save us from ourselves. Verse 7, come, let us. This is always striking when you read in Genesis, let us. God refers to himself as us. There is a, a relationship within God that is unexplainable unless you understand that God does not need us. God is, is sufficient by himself. God wants us, but he doesn't need us. And when we talk about Jesus being fully God, we talk about the Holy Spirit being fully God, we see that in this language. And there's no way to explain it. Even Jewish uh, scholars, it, there's no real way to explain this. And understand all the ways we try to explain God, the Father and Son, understand that's language for us. That, that it, we understand that Jesus didn't literally need to be born by God. Jesus is fully God. All this idea of relationship is so that we can understand a little bit of, of who God is. But God will always be more powerful than us. He'll always be a mystery to us. But, but these are glimpses into who he is. It says, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not, un so may not understand one another's speech. So that the so the Lord dispersed them from the from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Now we don't even hear about the tower. It's not about the tower. It's about the city. God goes down and He disperses them, and, and all of these people who had begun to live their life again, saying, "You know what? I don't care what God says. You know, I don't care uh, if God wants us to fill the earth with His image. I don't care if God wants us to go around telling people how great He is. I want to do what I want to do." I want to make sure that, that I have what I need and what I want. And, and so they're beginning to live these selfish, distracted lives. And God says, this will lead you to ruin. Let me go down there. Let us go down there. And we're going to disperse. And he's going to put them through confusion and chaos. And sometimes we go through pain just so it'll refocus us on what is important. And we see this distraction coming and putting in jeopardy to where they can't complete the task they thought. Not so that they wouldn't be strong enough to contend with God but so that they would not destroy themselves by continuing to go after God. Therefore, it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now what happens is uh, Babylon is a wordplay, Babel, and we, you can even see it kind of. Babylon has this wordplay of confusion. The word Babel and confusion in Hebrew, very close. But now, every time the Hebrew people would look at Babylon, the great city, they'd be like, every time we think about New York or London or Tokyo or one of these huge, or Dallas, one of these huge cities, instead of saying, man, look how great they are there in Babylon, now they would recall to them, man, they're so confused. They think it's all about them. They think they've got so much control. But really that name brings into this, man, they're so confused when it comes to the purpose of God. They're chaos. It's Babel. It's Babylon. It's not this great empire. It's a confusion of men who thought they were in control. Now, 
What I want you to see as we go through the, as we look back at this, I, I really want to make this as practical as possible because this is the story of us as much as any story in the Bible, okay? The story of Babel. Now, I'm going to give you just three ways. I found a ton of different ways that this reflects us, but I want to give you three ways in which our pride, our lack of self-awareness is shown in this, that, that you could look at our society today and you could say, you know what? We are exactly like them. This is the story of us. The first thing I want you to see, the first pride, is the pride of technology. Okay? They said, let us make bricks. And again, we can gloss over bricks as what kind of technology is that. But bricks opened up so much for them. Now, Josephus was a, a historian, a Hebrew historian, and he said that Nimrod built the Tower of Babel, or he built a large tower, and he told his people, no longer would a flood be able to threaten us. And he actually built the tower in mind uh, with the idea that, that, the, that the flood could not destroy them if they came high enough. They could actually build a, a tower tall enough so that at least he would be safe. And by the way, that's how most of the time government works, right? That, hey, we're going to build a tower so at least some of us can get up higher than everybody else. But what I want you to hear in that kind of story of whether or not that's, that's really why Nimrod built it, that's what Josephus, who was a, a little after Jesus, that's what he said, okay? And, and understanding that story, you see this total neglect for the promise of God. Because God had already said, you know what, I'm not going to do this again. I, I, I have punished you. You have felt the consequences uh, of walking away from me. I will never destroy the world with a flood again. But here you have Nimrod saying, you know what, I'm going to mitigate against the promises of God. I'm going to make sure that I'm in control so that if God changes his mind, if God doesn't fulfill his promise, I'll be able to cover myself. I'll be able to make sure that we are taken care of. And so you see this technology, every single time we take a step forward with technology, it it brings us to a point where we have to say, you know what, do we really need God anymore? Maybe I don't need God as much. Now, there was a period uh, where, um, called the Enlightenment where almost every single person began to question because of technology. Thomas Jefferson took a Bible, cut out all of the miracles simply because he said we can explain these now. We don't need, we've got enough scientific knowledge, enough technology to know this is really why things happen, that we don't need God, okay? And so there's this, this confusion that happens whenever we make a technological breakthrough. And understand, the technology itself is neutral. You can take a brick and you can make a pagan temple or you can make a church. It's a, it's a neutral technology. But there's, a, there's this tendency for us to just say, you know what? Ah, now that we've got this, we don't need God. We can explain him away. But understand, Genesis chapter 1 was very clear about this. God creates, man makes. There's a difference. Elon Musk has never created anything. Bill Gates has never created anything. Thomas Edison never created anything. He made something, but God created it. There's a saying that men can make tables, but God makes the trees. God creates, man makes. And we need to understand every step of technology should lead us to a question. How can I use this to glorify God? My cell phone, how can I use this to glorify God? Right now, there's so much technology. Our world is being revolution. We've got vaccines made in a year. We've got um, artificial intelligence. We've got uh, missions to Mars now. We've got all of these things that can revolutionize our world. And the question that many of us are not even asking, social media, the questions we're not even asking is, how can I use this to glorify God? 
And when we don't ask that question, how can I use this to glorify God? We find ourselves taking a step away from God. We find that, that technology replacing our faith in God. How can I use this technology to glorify God? That's a question we should be asking that we're not. The second thing, let us build a city, they say. This is the, the pride of enlightenment. This idea that if we get enough manpower in this room, we can solve any problems. And you kind of see this right now, that, that there are so many people that say, we, we figured out so much about the world, we can figure out how to solve a pandemic in a year or two years, depending on how this thing is going. We can figure out how to solve any problem in this world very, very quickly. Do you know this dependence on science and enlightenment is this idea that we can replace God. Did you know that, uh, I had this conversation with my brother, it was very uh, humorous, okay, did you know that, that scientists can actually, they can basically weigh the universe, they can look and they can measure the mass of the universe. Did you know this? To which my brother, by the way, responds, can they? And he does that little head, can they? Yes, they can, okay? Just because we can't figure out how somebody does something doesn't mean somebody can't do something, okay? They, they can measure the mass of the universe, and they can also look at all the matter, that is the stuff we see and can measure, and they can take the mass of everything that, that we can see, all the matter, okay? Now, what do you think the difference between all the weight or the mass of the universe, I should say, and the mass of everything you see and measure, every particle. What do you think the difference is? The matter and the things you see account for 5% of the weight or the mass of the universe. In other words, 95% of everything in this universe, scientists have no idea what it is or where it is. They don't know anything about it. It is, it is called dark matter or dark energy. And the only reason it's called dark matter or dark energy is because they don't know what it is, so they gave a name for 95% of the universe that can't be even discovered yet. And yet they know it has to exist. It, it has some mass. Now, I want you to, by the way, this is, you know they, they discovered a particle that goes straight through the earth, and it, does, it goes through the earth as sunlight going through a pane of glass. And they were able to trap it and, and discover that it exists, but it goes through lead like lead isn't even there, and yet we think we can figure out the world. Now, all that to say, this pride of enlightenment, this pride that if we get enough men together, we're going to figure out and replace and we don't need God, is so, so misguided. We are so distracted by our knowledge. In fact, right now, you look at the news and we're distracted, we're divided with, with one another, whether it's gun rights or there's gender stuff on the news and in our nation. And then you look personally and we're distracted by, I gotta have maybe a new job, I wanna get more money, I'm, I'm, you know, am, I, am I looking good in the neighborhood, am, am I keeping up with the people, they got a new fence and maybe we should get a pool, maybe we should do this. All the things we're confused because, man, I can make my life awesome, I can do whatever I want in, in this same idea. We can become so prideful at what we can accomplish that we begin to, to forget the main question, what is God calling me to do? God is calling me to spread his image over the world, to tell people, to evangelize, to spread this out. And yet we become so focused on how good we are, the pride of enlightenment. And the last thing I want to show you is this. Let us make our name great, the pride of purpose. 
You know, my life is about me. I want to make my life awesome. You know, what's interesting about this, this endeavor they set out on, let us make our name great. That's what they said when they wanted to get to Let us make our name great. You know that in Genesis chapter 12, it starts off with the story of Abraham, who's going to be our next series. By the way, not the next series, but the next Genesis series we do will be the story of Abraham. It starts off in Genesis chapter 12. It says this, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. In other words, we have this purpose of making our name great. In the one time or the next story where a man says, you know what, God, I'm going to make your name great. God says, you know what, if you make my name great, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to let you enjoy all that you, this blessing, this creation. We see this relationship becomes the primary way in which we enjoy God's creation. But when we think about all of the ways we live out our life right now, it's all about how can I make my name great. The tragedy, I think, that I see right now in our culture of Babylon or in the United States, more than anything, is this focus on who we are and how we make our name great. Our entire lives sometimes, even as Christ's followers, is made simply of us making our name great. Paul says, hey, you're offended. Why not be offended? Why not suffer wrong? There's also, is there something going on behind me? It looks like there's something going on behind me. Oh, there are kids. Okay, good. Okay. I was like, okay. Um, but this idea of being, hey, why not? Why do I always have to stick up for myself? Why do I always have to be right? Why do I always have to make sure people know how I feel? Why do I always have to post and make sure people know what I ate today or what I'm doing today or how my life is awesome? Everything about our culture just about comes back to what I want, what makes me good. And what even in the church, this is my biggest concern right now in our church, to tell you the truth, is there's even an apathy for the church right now that is that has just come over our church I felt it here but I've also talked to other pastors there's an apathy of people who, whose our purpose has become so kind of inward so what do I want right now and we're we're in danger of stopping to ask the question hey why did God put us together as a church why did God call us together as a church you know, in the next few weeks and months, we're going to need our volunteers back. We're going to need our, our, our eyes to look outward and say, where are the lost? Where are the people God are calling us? And there's so many of us right now that, you know what? We've tricked ourselves into this lie of, you know what? I like being locked down. I like the, the excuse of I don't have to go out. I don't have to talk to my neighbor. It's not safe. We, we, we've, we've tricked ourselves into thinking I can be selfish now and the culture will like it. Well, I've got some news for you. You could have been selfish forever and the culture will, will, will allow for it because that is our nature. There's this pride of purpose where we're beginning to say, I know God says this. I know the church is supposed to have this mission, but I can do what I want to do. This is about me. If there's one thing we see in this story. We see God says, listen, I will give you pain, confusion, and chaos if that's what it takes to make sure that my purpose is fulfilled. And we should take that as a warning. Now, I want to close out this series by just kind of looking over what we've learned in this series. We've learned in Genesis chapter 1 that God loves us so much. He created this world and everything in it for us. And in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we say hey, we are the creation. Uh, we are the, the, the culmination of creation. We are his pride point, the image of God. And he gave us anything we wanted. And the one thing we chose was the one thing he didn't give us. 
we have this heart, this bent, that even though we love God and even though in our minds we sometimes want to follow him, we have this bent that we will choose sin, we will choose rebellion if given enough chances. It's just the way we are. But we see God, instead of throwing us out naked and afraid, what does he do? He covers us. In fact, he came to us. He called to us. Where are you? And then he covered us. He atoned for us. He even shed blood to say, this is serious. I can't let it go, but I will cover you. And then even when there was a murder, even then when, when it got so much that God warned us, hey, this is going to, 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 to crouch at your door. Sin is crouching in there. If you don't master it, it will master you. And even when the wrong choice was happening, what did God do? He put a mark on Cain and he said, listen, I will protect you. Even in your sin, I will protect you. And as it goes and goes and men and sin and sin, God eventually says, you know what? Eventually you're going to have consequences. And we see the flood. But even in the consequences of our sin and the destruction, what do we see? We see God saying, you know what? I'm still going to save. And I'm going to save even though you didn't deserve it. I'm going to save. And he saves Noah even when he didn't deserve it. And what happens right out of the gate, resets. God makes a promise. I'm not going to destroy anymore from now on. I'm going to save. And it goes right back to the same thing. Men begin to build cities and say, I know God gave us a reason or God gave us a purpose and God wants something more for us, but I'm going to do my own thing. And instead of saying, you know what? No reset this time. It's over. Game over. God instead, what does he say? The same thing he said in Genesis. He calls out and he says, let me go down there. Let me go save them from themselves. The story we see start in Genesis will continue through the whole Bible. God seeing his creation, his people that he loves and he simply wants to be with. And when we screw up, when we get so far that he doesn't even recognize who we are, instead of saying, you know what, I'm done, he says, I remember that promise I made to Noah. I will come down and save You'll understand, we see Jesus all over the story of us, the story of us rebelling against ourselves, rebelling against God. Simply so, God can say, I still love you. I will come down there and I will save you from yourselves. And so as we close out this series, I want to just call us to a repentance, call us to a love of God, a passion of knowing Easter Sunday is next week. Easter Sunday, where, where God gives his ultimate expression of how he will save, even at the cost when Jesus doesn't deserve it and we deserve it all. We see the story of Noah. Noah didn't deserve it, but he got it all. The same stories over and over again, God will save. And it's not transactional. It's not if you do this and this and this, it is relational. It is listened. If you will be my, my people, I will simply save you. And all you have to do is trust me. This is the promise that Jesus made or that, that we have in Jesus, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the story of us. Let's pray. Lord, my heart as we go through this, this series is that even in the complications or the nuances and, and all the details, we don't miss the big picture. The big picture is that you are a God who creates us because you love us, and you are a God who saves us because you love us. And no matter how far we go, no matter how many times we ignore who you are and what you've done for us, instead of abandoning us, you come down to us. And you did that ultimately in Jesus, Lord. We rejoice in the fact 
that we can go out in this sunny day. We can go out and enjoy this day. We can go out and enjoy our, our relationships and all of the things of this creation as long as we have them in the right place. That they are simply for us to enjoy while we continue the mission you gave us to spread your image, your name over the face of this earth and let the name of Jesus be great. Lord, let this never depart from our hearts, no matter how focused we get on the things we have to do each day. Let us never forget why you created us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.